So my name is Matthew. Hi. I'm the student ministries pastor here at Connection Point Church. And that basically means that I get to serve and guide our teenagers from 7th through 12th grade. And it can look like anything from a Sunday night youth, uh, youth group, youth gathering. We meet from 6 to 8 p.m. It can look like activities or events or retreats. We actually have an activity today directly after church if you're in 7th through 12th grade and you like ice cream up in the youth room. Uh, we're going to have a ton of ice cream, so you can make your own Sunday. Uh, students can paint on canvases, play video games. We're going to have some cartoons on the TV. You can play board games. It's really just an opportunity for students to be sugared up, and then we can send them home. Um, and I, I have a lot of ice cream left, and I want to go through it all today. Uh, but at a more pragmatic level, my role here means walking with students through the day-to-day mundanity of life and celebrating the successes that come with that as well as grieving the, the failures and mistakes and pain that comes with that, the highs and lows. And our goal here at Connection Point Church, and especially in Connection Point students, my goal is to help students take their next step of faith. Because regardless of where you find yourself on the spectrum of belief, we all have a next step. Whether you've been coming to church for a long time, whether you've been a Christian for a long time, or whether you don't even know what you think about this Jesus guy, there's always a next step. And so we want to help students to continue in the direction of Jesus. But today, I want to talk about something really important. I want to talk about stories. There have been a lot of stories and articles that have come out in the last year and studies that have been done that indicate that stories stick in our brain better than just mere facts, statistics, data, or analytics. There is something, there's this phenomenon that means that our brain connects to stories in a way like none other. One study said that stories help us to learn empathy and compassion to see from another person's perspective. And what we can do is we create a neural pathway in in our brain that collects that information, those truths, those morals, those things that we connect to. We we, uh, shortcut that to our memories. And it's how people can, five years removed from seeing a movie, still recall certain dialogue or certain themes, or they can recall where they were when they read a particular book, or the way they felt when their parents told them a bedtime story or a fairy tale, it's because stories matter. And historically, the best teachers have always taught using stories because they understand that the process of how you achieve information is half the process of transformation. Because I could just give you answers, but that's not the point. The point is the process at which we arrive at those answers. And stories tend to be one of the best ways. One article I read put it this way. It said, in other words... When you hear a well-told story, your brain reacts as if you're experiencing it for yourself. And then it continues and says, we are biologically and neurologically wired to connect with stories. Teachers for centuries have taught through stories. It's why we have oral tradition. People would, before we had parchment and pen, we would pass down stories from generation to generation. And that was our history. That was what we knew of our people, of our roots, is we knew what we were told. And so we'd recall these stories and recall these memories that we had that are connected to the story and continue on and on to share it. And so it's no wonder that Jesus, who scholars would say, regardless of religious background, scholars for centuries have been saying Jesus is one of the best teachers of all time. Regardless of how you feel about Christianity, regardless of how you feel about faith, Jesus was really good at teaching. And so it's no wonder he taught mostly in parables. And parables are just stories similar to like an Aesop's fable. Like, you've all heard The Boy Who Cried Wolf, right? It's a pretty simple story. It was a story about a boy who 
cried out for help from the community that a wolf was attacking him. And two times the community comes out in troves to save him and realize he's just lying. There's no wolf. And then the third time he cries out and there is a wolf attacking him and no one comes to help him. It's a story about a boy and a wolf, but more than that, it's a story about the danger of lying and distrust. Jesus told stories like that all the time. The prodigal son, for example. There's a story about a son and his father and a son who goes out to sow his wild oats and he squanders in his, his inheritance and then he comes back and his, his father forgives him. But it's a story about more than just a father and a son. It's a story about the reckless and unrelenting and unconditional love and forgiveness that God has for us. Parables and Aesop's fables are very similar in the sense that they would tell you a story but with a moral and a truth just beneath the surface. You can read it at face value, but there's so much more lying just beneath the surface. And so today what I want to do is I want to tell you a parable from the Gospel of Luke. It's a parable that I think have eternal implications for our lives. I think it impacts our very family. It impacts our work. It impacts our decision-making. And it impacts our own view of ourself. And so before we jump into the Gospel of Luke, I want to give you a little context. Luke is unlike the other Gospel writers. Luke is the third book in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. The first four books are Gospels. And when we talk about Gospels, sometimes we just breeze past that definition as if you know what we're talking about. A Gospel means good news. That's what the word means. And so when it says, it is the Gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, it's saying, this is the good news according to, insert that disciple. And the good news we know is that Jesus came to save us and to redeem us. And Luke's Gospel is different, though. Matthew, Mark, and John were all present for the life of Jesus. They were writing what we would call eyewitness accounts. Luke, on the other hand, wasn't present for the life of Jesus. There might have been societal overlap. It's a small world. Uh, But what Luke was doing was basically compiling all of the eyewitness and stories, eyewitness accounts and stories that he heard from other people about the life, teaching, and ministry of Jesus and compiling that into one biography or expose to the point that Most biblical scholars look at the two books that Luke wrote, Luke and Acts, and say that they're the most detailed books in the New Testament. He was so detail-oriented, and it's why some of his stories stand out, because there's more texture and verbiage to them. And so today, we're going to look at Luke chapter 14. It's a story about Jesus, who at this time is becoming a local celebrity because of his miracles and healings, and he's invited by some wealthy and prominent leaders in the church over to a dinner party. And I'll tell you, my parents raised me, uh, and they told me this, this line about what I should do if I was ever to be invited to a dinner party. I've never been, but if I ever was, they said, you never talk about politics, religion, or money, because it makes people uncomfortable. Jesus does the opposite of that. He talks about all three. He talks about politics, religion, and money, and how we should care for the poor. And ultimately, a central theme is, then the kingdom of God, humility is exalted above pride that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And this isn't what the prominent, wealthy, successful people want to hear. They want to hear that they are going to get their gemstones in heaven, that they're going to be praised for all of the good work they did. And what Jesus says is humility is a virtue in the kingdom of God. And so this is where we pick up the story in verse 15 of chapter 14. It goes like this. It says, When one of those reclining with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. But Jesus replied, A certain man prepared a great banquet and invited many guests. When it was time for the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. 
one after another, they all began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I need to go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go try them out. Please excuse me. A third said, I've, I, just, I have a married wife, or, so I cannot come. And then the servant returned and reported all this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and into the alleys of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant replied, what you have ordered has been done and there's still room. And so the master told the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. For I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will taste of my banquet. This is a weird story. If you take it at face value, it's a weird story to be placed in the Bible because if you break it down into its simplest terms, it's about a very wealthy man inviting friends over for a party. They say no, and he does not take the rejection well. Right? That's what the story is if you break it down. But just like the Aesop's fables, this parable is about more than just a banquet. It's about the kingdom of God. And once you start to recognize that, the gravity of the situation becomes a lot heavier because now people aren't just receiving an invitation to a banquet, they're receiving an invitation to the kingdom. And so I want to lay out for you three themes that I see that come up in this story that I think genuinely have eternal implications for us. And the first is the theme of invitation. Jesus starts the story by saying that a master has invited a multitude or many people and then they all begin to make excuses, and he highlights a few, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But he talks about this invitation, and, and he says that he doesn't like that there's room in his house. And part of the reason for that is because if someone threw a banquet or threw a feast, especially a wealthy person, this was not a several-hour affair. Like, if I invite you over to my house for a dinner party, three hours then, read the room, Right? But in this day and age, a banquet or a feast could potentially last up to two or three days, depending on who's running the party. And it would have every delicacy known to man. In that day and age, they would have breads and wines and cheeses and meats, honey, which was very uh, expensive. And so in this day and age, a banquet was a big ordeal. It was a big event to be invited to. And he doesn't want his work or his money to go to waste. So what does he tell his servant? Who does he invite to the banquet? He says that he invited the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The interesting fact about that is this is a motley crew, so to speak. These are not your ordinary guests. In this day and age, people didn't go out of their way to associate or invite the poor. They didn't go out of their way to associate or spend time with people who had ailments because in this day and age, if you had an ailment, the assumption was that you came from a family that had sinned, that this was God's punishment to you. You're crippled because your family did something wrong. So no one wanted to associate with that. And what Jesus is doing is he's taking the cultural norm where people would invite the prominent or the wealthy or the successful and the idea was that when you invite these people into your house to a party or to a meal, you are telling society that I associate with them. Those are my people. So it makes sense, right? People in this day and age wanted to associate with the wealthy. They wanted to be known as higher status because the thought was that even if you're not high status, you can elevate your status by being associated to successful people. And Jesus says, let's flip that upside down. What if in the kingdom of God, it's not about wealthy and prominent? What if it's that this invitation is open to everyone? 
What if we can invite the poor, the blind, the crippled, and the lame? Because the thought here is that whenever it uses those uh, four different names for, for anything, it's almost always used as a moniker or as a list to talk about the lowly, the least of these, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the people on the fringe, the people who society often forgets about. And Jesus is saying, I want to associate with those people. What if the kingdom of God is not only full of just successful, well-educated, best of the best, cream of the crop people? What if the invitation of the kingdom of God is open for everyone? My junior year of college, uh, my friends and I went to the cafeteria on a Saturday night. And if you don't know Olivet Nazarene University, Saturday nights are a ghost town. No one is there. They all go home or they go to Walmart. Those are your options. And so my friends and I, we would go to dinner on Saturday nights when it opened, and we'd stay until close because it was better than homework. And so we were there, went to dinner, and on our way out, a gentleman in a very dapper suit came up to us in a rush. And he said, I want to invite you guys to dinner. I know you just left the cafeteria, but will you please come to this dinner? A big donor from the school is on campus. We were throwing this celebration to celebrate all the work he's done over his years of donating money. And we invited faculty and staff for a whole host of reasons. People haven't shown up and the room is feeling a little empty. Would you guys be willing to come fill the room? And I'm like, free food? Sure. Yeah. But I will say, I looked down and I was wearing a Foo Fighters t-shirt, a Miami Dolphins baseball cap, shorts, which you're not even supposed to wear at Olivet sometimes, and shoes. And he's like, don't care what you're wearing. We just need warm bodies. I'm like, sick. So I go up to the room and I kid you not, there was a harpist. I don't interact with harpists a lot. Um, that is not a part of my daily vernacular or what I do. Um, but they were playing beautiful ambient music. Everyone was wearing suits and ball gowns. The president of the university was there. Steak, chicken, crab, dessert out the wazoo. And my friends and I just started laughing at the complete and utter absurdity of this. So we grab a plate full of food because we we're college guys. And we're sitting down and it dawns on me for the first time in my life how similar this situation is to the great banquet. And how for the first time I realized Jesus wants me to. Um, no matter how broken you might feel, no matter how far away you feel, or the times where you maybe mess up and you say, man, God must be up in heaven thinking that was one too many mistakes, right? I think we've all been in a position where we think that maybe, just maybe, we're not worth it. And what this story tells us is that we serve a God of invitation who is every single day renewing the invitation for you to be a part, for you to come to the great banquet to take a seat. The ball's in your court, it's not in God's. He's waiting for you to say yes. The beauty of one of the most famous Bible verses is John 3.16, right? If you've ever watched a Florida Gators game and seen Tim Tebow, you know this. He used to brighten his eye black all the time. It says, for God so loved the world. It never said, for God so loved the people who had their lives together. Never said for God so loved the perfect people, the Christian people, the whoever. It just says for God so loved the world. All of creation and everyone in it from start of time to end of time. Now that doesn't mean there aren't consequences for bad actions, 100%. But what it does mean is that you are already loved. That you already belong. The only thing standing between you and the banquet or you and the kingdom of God is you. It's your decision to say yes. The ball's in your court. Second theme is the theme of excuse. The story starts and says, the master invited many people and they all began to make excuses. But the writer highlights three in particular. 
He highlights one guy who said he just bought a field, he just bought this big plot of land, depending on the translation you read, and he has to go see to it. Another person says he just bought five yoke of oxen, and he has to go test them out. No clue what that means, but he had to go test them out. The third person, I like how everyone else gave super elaborate excuses, and this guy just said, I just got married. I'm good. Right? And so all of these excuses have one thing in common. And I asked my wife last night, and she didn't know what it was. So I'm going to ask you rhetorically. You don't actually have to say it out loud. What's the one thing that all of these have in common? They're all justifiable. They're all valid excuses. They're not like the dog ate my homework of excuses. It's not like one person's like, how many oxen can I tell them so I don't have to go? How many yokes is too many yokes of oxen? Right? Never once in this passage does it say the people don't want to go to the banquet or that they're trying to get out of the banquet. It just says that they have their reasons. And if you consider in context, if someone were to buy a plot of land or buy a field, it was for one of two purposes in this day. It was for either agricultural purposes, to till the ground to get crops for either their livelihood or for their food for their family, or Unlike today's day and age where you can go get a plot of land with a model house on it or a model trailer or whatever, you can go find a place with property that's already pre-existing. In this day and age, when you bought land and you wanted a house on it, better get to work. Because the house isn't going to build itself, and so you're basically waiting on yourself to get the work done before your family can move in. This is an excuse about your household and your possessions. The second excuse, similar, a guy says, I just bought five yoke of oxen. And I've never owned oxen. Um, Chicagoland wasn't big on oxen. And I will say, I don't know how much a yoke necessarily is. I would imagine two. But oxen weren't the top ten list of pets people would have. So if you're buying oxen, it's not because you want to rear a baby ox for yourself. It's because you're doing it for your livelihood. And most people made quite a good deal of money on livestock. Either trading or for butchery or for regular agricultural means. And so when this guy says, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, it's like when we say in our modern context, work's really busy right now. I have an investment I gotta, I gotta look over. I have deadlines. The guy's excuse is all about his work. And the third excuse about marriage, think about our modern context of the honeymoon. Right? People get married, and sometimes they go directly into a honeymoon. In this day and age, there wasn't a dating period. A guy would go up to a person's father and say, hey, I like your daughter. Can I have her? And then you're married. Easy peasy. Well, in this day and age, we obviously, there's a dating period where you get to know each other. In this time, he probably was genuinely trying to get to know his wife, which is such a foreign concept to us. But even so, take that out of the equation just say, what if he wanted to tend to his relationships, his friends or his family? We all have been in positions where we have to take care of our own relationships for our own health and sanity. We need to spend time with our kids or spend time with our spouse or spend time with our parents or siblings, or we just want to see some friends. It's not that he didn't want to go to the banquet. None of these people didn't want to go to the banquet. It's that they had valid excuses. But the fact remains, when you observe that the story is about the kingdom of God and not just a banquet, the gravity of the situation becomes a lot more clear that they are not making excuses about a banquet, they're making excuses about the kingdom of God. And regardless of how valid and justifiable their excuses might be, the last line of that passage says, and they will not taste of the feast. They won't be in the kingdom. And it's not for lack of good intentions. 
America is full of good intentions. The problem is priority. Because we'll always shape our lives around our priority. If your priority is work, your life is going to be shaped around what you do for a living. If your priority is your family and your relationships, your life is always going to be formed around your family. And those aren't bad things. Not by a long shot. They're very good things. They were just never meant to be the most important thing. They were never meant to dethrone God in your life. I've said this example before, but a very basic definition of idolatry is whatever has the throne in your life. And if it's not God, that's an idol, no matter how good it might be. And so the point of this theme is what's our excuse? Because at some point or another, we've all had one. No matter how well-intentioned we might be, we've all had an excuse in the back of our mind. And we put off our faith, and we say, someday I'll get back into reading my Bible. Someday I'll start praying more. Someday I'll get more involved. Someday I'll start serving. And the the problem with someday is someday never happens. Uh, Tomorrow turns into next year really fast. And so the question is, what is your excuse? No matter how good, no matter how valid, no matter how justifiable, what is the thing that creates a barrier and an obstacle between you and taking your next step? What's the thing that prevents you from growing in your faith? Because we all have something in our past. We all have something in our life. And I'll tell you, I'll be very honest with you, mine almost always boils down to, I don't feel like I have enough time. Man, I would love to pray today, but work's really slammed. I'd, oh, I'd love to read my Bible, but I slept in a little too late. Man, I'd really like to do that one thing at church, but it just it doesn't fit into the schedule because life gets busy. And everyone in this room knows that, teen, adult, children, whatever, you all know that life gets busy and times get tough. And when that happens, the, the problem is more often than not, regardless of our intention about growing in our faith, we end up putting Jesus on the back burner. And so this parable is a parable about putting Jesus back in his rightful spot, rightful priority in your life. But I want to throw out a caveat, and it's a very positive one because it's been a dour point. But the very positive caveat is, just like we talked about how Jesus is constantly inviting us, right? The flip side to that is that because Jesus is always inviting us every single day that we're alive, regardless of if you've made excuses in the past, guess what? Today's a new opportunity. Today you get to say yes. Tomorrow, same opportunity arises. I heard one missionary when I was at Olivet, he spoke about going through this really dark season in his life where just everything seemed to be falling apart, and he was questioning everything. And he said, for about a year, he'd wake up before he got out of bed, before he checked his phone, his emails, whatever, he would always pray the same simple prayer. I choose to believe today. This is a guy with a PhD in ministry and missions work, and the best he can come up with is, I choose to believe today. And I think the beauty and elegance of that is it recognizes that faith is not a static decision. We are taught from a young age that when when you pray the prayer, you're good. Cross it off the list. Check the box. You did it. Faith is a daily decision that we make every single day of our lives. To say yes to God, to choose to believe today. And sometimes we don't want to, and sometimes it's difficult. And every morning, God is giving us another invitation to come to the table, to come to the banquet, to enter into the kingdom. The third theme is probably the most esoteric and symbolic, so stick with me. It's the theme of life. What I think is interesting is 
the first line of this passage before Jesus jumps into his parable, a guy says what sounds like the right words. We're just going to be honest. Like, it sounds good on paper. But have you ever said something where you're like, I think this is going to really land, and then it backfires on you? That's this guy. He said, blessed is everyone who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Sounds good, right? And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. That's his, that's his backup. He's like, let me tell you a story. Because Jesus knows that this guy is pointing out that he's going to be one of the people in the kingdom because he's so accomplished. Because he's Jewish. And in this day and age, if you were Jewish and you were of Jewish descent, you were going to heaven. Regardless of how your life was, you were going to be there. Jesus says it's not always that simple. So he tells him a story. But I love the analogy of food because I love eating. Um, Food is used all throughout the Bible. uh, And it's used as an analogy for life. For two reasons. First off, you don't last long without eating. Pretty common sense. The second one, though, is because bread is always used as a sustaining, nourishing force. And so symbolically, the Bible will often talk about eating, sharing a meal, as a symbolism for life. That's why at the Last Supper, Jesus compares his body and his blood to bread and wine Because bread is a nourishing force for us. It's a sustaining force. It's why Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew teaches his disciples how to pray, and he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. And he says, give us today our daily bread. The people in that day and age would have been praying two different ways. They would have been praying both for physical bread, because unlike us in the West, in most cases, they didn't necessarily know where their next meal was coming from. And so they were genuinely praying for daily bread. But along with that, they were also praying for spiritual bread. They are praying for spiritual nourishment and sustenance because in their mind, they understand that they are completely submissive to God. That the only sustaining force in their life is God. And so they would pray every day from a posture of humility, recognizing the sustaining force of Jesus. And it's interesting that a lot of the analogies used in the Bible when it says that we are following God in, uh, after Jesus following God, they'll often talk about how when we follow Jesus and are in a relationship with Jesus, we are a new, new creation, a new identity. The old is gone, the new is here. The idea is that by following Christ, we are to be born again, that we are going to enter into new life. Because Jesus didn't just come to earth to give you a free pass to heaven. He did do that, right? Like he did come and save us from our sins, Sometimes we boil the gospel down to that one small tidbit and miss the fact that Jesus lived for 33 years trying to teach us a better way to live now. That following Christ should impact your day-to-day interactions. It should impact your family relationships. It should impact your community and your workplace. One church put it this way, that the goal of the Christian life is to be like Jesus, be with Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Jesus modeled for us the right way to live. And to enter into this new identity and this new life is the type of life that looks at an enemy and says, I will choose to love you even though it seems impossible. It's a type of person who can look at a broken situation and say, it's not too far gone. It's a type of person who chooses justice and reconciliation over hate and division because the world is already too full of that. And it's a, it's a new life and new creation that looks at this world and says, we choose love at all costs. That's what we're called to. Because the truth of the matter is Jesus should 
change our lives. The problem is, more often than not, we boil it down into assenting to the right beliefs. And that's it. And that's important. You should believe the right things, right? We should all agree on that. Knowing the right answers is a good thing, but it really doesn't make much difference until we start to live the right way as well. And Jesus came to model the right way to live. If you're ever sitting there being like, I don't know how I should interact in this situation, look at Jesus. My dad always used to tell me, he said, the best way to lead is by example. And so Jesus did. He led by example. He showed us what is expected of us. And it starts with love. That's the new life that we're being invited into. When we talk about the story of the great banquet, what they're actually being invited into is new life. Because they're being invited into a relationship with Jesus, which means that the old is gone and the new is here. That we don't have to stay anchored to the past anymore. So I'm going to conclude with a brief story. Uh, I have a few pictures I want to show you. Um, These are pictures of my Uncle Bob and me. Um, I looked cuter in the red jumpsuit, so that's why I put both pictures. Um, That's my Uncle Bob. And my Uncle Bob wanted to be a pastor so bad. He loved the church. Um, He loved one church in particular. It was a church that I grew up at. And I wanted to be a pastor. But because of some cognitive impairments, while his body aged, his brain kind of stopped aging at about five years old. So he was about 48, 49, but he still had the cognizance of a, a kindergartner. So he couldn't be a pastor, but he loved that my brother and I went to Olivet to study ministry. So every time we would come home, my uncle would corner me and say, what are you learning? Like, what, what church are you serving at? What are you doing? When can I be there? He was so excited by all of it. And so I was interning at a church as a student ministries intern uh, my junior year of college, and I got the opportunity to preach at a winter retreat. It was the first time I was ever going to preach in front of more than like 10 people. I had to preach in front of like 20 people. It was awesome. And I, I had written this sermon I was so proud of, and so I went home for Christmas break to tell my uncle about it, and I told him all about it, and he's like, can I go? And I'm like, ooh, it's in Wisconsin. It's like a four-hour drive from where we lived. And I know your mom, i.e. my grandma, well enough to know she's not going to drive you all the way out there just to hear me preach. And he said, well, will you save me a seat? I said, sure, I'll save you a seat. So on my way out, he gave me a big hug. He always called me Max for some reason. We never figured that out. But he called me Max. He said, Max, don't you forget. You got to save me a seat. And so um, that was New Year's Eve. He died that Friday. I preached about a month after. And I remember I got to speak at his funeral. I eulogized him. And uh, I got to see him at the wake. And I said, hey, I'll save you a seat. And what I realized looking back on that story is the thing I'll never forget is that he always felt like he had to convince me to save him a seat. He always felt like he had to convince me that he was worth having there. Because he didn't feel like he had anything to offer. And I wonder for how many of us our faith is the same way. We sit there feeling like we need to convince God that we're worth it. That we need to convince God and say, please, just save me a seat. Don't forget. And the whole time what we're missing is that God is calling you into new life. The invitation is already out there and there's a seat with your name on it. All that's left for you to do is to say yes. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we have a song to conclude. But I'm going to pray for us, so if you don't mind bowing your head. God, today, wherever we find ourselves on this spectrum of belief, wherever we find ourselves in faith, whether we've been around the church for a long time or we're still new to this, God, I pray that today is the day we choose to believe. 
I pray that today is the day that we choose to start up a new faith or start over and recommit that we choose to give ourselves to you fully and to realize that you are the sustaining force in our life, to stop letting our excuses take the forefront of our minds, stop letting it take the driver's seat, but instead to embrace your love, to embrace the invitation and say yes. Amen.